Today's scripture reading comes to us from 1 Peter 4, verse 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will it be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, John. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to New Creation Fellowship, especially those of you who might be visiting us for the first time and those who are here investigating the Christian faith. If this is your first or second or third time with us, welcome and welcome back. We hope and pray that you will not only continue your fellowship with us, but that you would also consider making yourself known, saying hello to me or to Pastor James or any of our other servant leaders, because as Pastor James just said a moment ago, we love meeting new people and we would love the opportunity even more just to say hello and get to know you as you continue to search and investigate either the Christian faith or your next Christian community. So with all that said, would you now bow your heads with me and ask for the Lord's blessing as I am about to do on our behalf so that our time will be filled with that blessing. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would now speak to us for we have lived in this world the past six days and now we come to you weary, discouraged, tired, tattered and torn with all the trials and tribulations that we are called to bear. And now, God, we ask that you would give us this day of rest as you promised that you said you would. For you are the Lord of the Sabbath and you have given this Sabbath for our rest and for our comfort and for our encouragement. And so, Jesus, would you do that now and that you would encourage us and that whatever distracting thoughts, whatever anxious feelings that we may carry in the bosom of our hearts or in the static of our thoughts, we pray that you would banish them so that we could be fully attentive and therefore fully receiving of all the wonderful gifts that you will give to us through your message today. We ask that you would now bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. I first came across those words when I was in 11th grade English where our class was studying Shakespeare's Macbeth. And I heard it again recently in a book by Timothy Keller, a pastor well-known here in Redeemer. And it's spoken by the character known as Macduff as he is wailing about the sufferings that his fellow Scotsmen are suffering under the tyrannical and unfair rule of a godless king by the name of Macbeth. Now, maybe some of you in here recognize that quote and even the character who said it, but even if you didn't, it doesn't matter because the most important thing is that all of us in here can completely agree with that statement to where that is almost, in fact, is an irrefutable fact. Each new day begins with new victims who are suffering sufferings that will cause them to become widows and orphans and other tragic victims that we see 
on the news all the time because we live in a messed up world. This is why, going back to Tim Keller, he begins his introductory chapter of his very powerful book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, with these words, quote, Suffering is everywhere, unavoidable, and its scope often overwhelms. If you spend an hour reading this book, more than five children throughout the world will have died from abuse and violence during that time. If you give the entire day to reading, more than 100 children will have died violently. But this is, of course, only one innumerable forms and modes of suffering. Thousands die from traffic accidents or cancer every hour, and hundreds of thousands learn that their loved ones are suddenly gone. That is comparable to the population of a small city being swept away every day, leaving families and friends devastated in the wake. Suffering is an unavoidable reality. Therefore, it is something that is inescapable to any of us. And this is an irrefutable fact, a fact which the Bible affirms over and over again. In fact, there's one particular book in the Bible that constantly resonates this idea, which is the book of First Peter. The book of 1 Peter written by the Apostle Peter himself where he's addressing a group of Christians who are suffering precisely because of the fact that they are Christians. Within a span of four chapters, Peter addresses the various kinds of sufferings that followers of Jesus have to deal with as they live in this broken world. Sufferings such as suffering in the hands of a wicked government, suffering in a hostile workplace, suffering even in the context of of a mixed marriage where one is a believer and the other is not. See, Peter wants his readers, which includes all of us, to recognize that part of what it means in living the Christian life, part of what it means of being a follower of Jesus, is that you need to learn how to deal with your suffering, how to process your suffering in such a way that your faith and your hope in Jesus stays intact. In other words, he wants to equip Christians. He wants to equip us this morning on how to deal with the sufferings that we are inevitably going to face in such a way that we will be able to hold on to our faith rather than our faith being handed out forever gone. And today, Peter is going to address, in my mind, what is perhaps the greatest lesson that we need to learn as Christians in a world of suffering, and that is answering the question, how? How? How do I correctly process? How do I accurately interpret how do i properly understand the sufferings that i go through in life so that my faith will carry on rather than be carried out on a metaphorical stretcher as a dead faith well to answer that question peter wants to teach us two profound biblical principles principles that we need to make sure that we properly get so that when we suffer not if but when we suffer instead of coming out bitter and full of doubt We leave with joy and full of faith. And what are these two principles? Principle number one, suffering is abnormally normal. Suffering is abnormally normal. Number two, Christian suffering is a derivative of a greater suffering. Christian suffering is a derivative of a greater suffering. So let's talk about these two things, beginning with the first, suffering is abnormally normal. Have the passage up with me, please. Let's read again verse 12, and it reads as follows. Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Here, Peter makes it pretty obvious that the Christians that he was writing to were, in his words, surprised. They were shocked. They were 
utterly astounded by the fact that they were suffering. In fact, if you read this in the New King James Version, you get that across more clearly where it says this. Do not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Now, you can read this verse and come to the conclusion that these Christians that Peter is writing to must have been some of the most sheltered, some of the most protected group of people making them the most naive and simplistic and idiotic people, especially for us New Yorkers, because if there's anything that all of us in here who live in this city know, that suffering is a normal part of life. Am I right? I mean, you got to live in this city to know that suffering is inevitable. It's the norm. It's simply the way life is. I mean, isn't that what our life experience teaches us? Isn't that what our culture is constantly reminding us all the time? Case in point, one of the most iconic songs that our culture has ever created came back in 1992 entitled Everybody Hurts. Do you remember that hit, right? You remember the lyrics of that song that verified and validated this very idea? Listen to how it goes. If you're on your own in this life, the days and night are long. When you think you've had too much of this life to hang on, well, everybody hurts. Everybody cries. Everybody hurts sometimes, and everybody hurts sometimes. So hold on, 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 because everybody hurts. Now, the fact that this was REM's one of the most successful hits that they've ever produced in their entire career tells us that a whole society, an entire culture has validated what this message is saying, namely that suffering is normal. Because everybody hurts, everybody suffers. And to be surprised by it, to find it to be strange, is an indication that there's something odd with you. There's something off. There's something idiotic about you. And that's a temptation that we can think about these Christians that Peter is writing to. These must be some of the most, most full-hearted, idiotic, stupid people on the face of the earth. But ah, uh, don't go so far in your judgment. Okay? Don't be so harsh, because here's something that you need to understand about these Christians Peter is writing to. These are some good, godly, saintly Christians in the ancient world. These are some of the most morally upright, the most faithful Christians that you will ever find in the history of the church. These were good citizens. These were good parents, good wives, good workers, good citizens. And yet they were under constant, severe persecution and discrimination. In other words, they were suffering unprovoked, unjust suffering. Listen to me when I say this. I don't care how wise you think you are. I don't care how sophisticated you think you are because you are aware that everybody hurts and suffering is a norm. When you are constantly under the attack of unprovoked, unjust, unfair suffering, at some point, all of you in here are going to ask, how is this happening? How could this happen to me? How is this right? How can there be any proper explanation to what is happening to me or to my loved one. In other words, when you suffer unjustly, you will eventually start to look at your suffering as a strange thing. You will see it as an abnormal thing. And that is not an indication that you are simplistic or stupid or idiotic. Rather, it's an indication that you are wise, that you're wise. What do you mean? Well, let me explain. Do you know that there is a difference between something being true but yet at the same time not being right? Do you know that there are things in life that may be true, but it doesn't mean it's right? And sometimes the only way you can distinguish that is when you are wise, when you have wisdom. Let me give you an explanation with what I mean. At some point, all of us in here know that we're going to have to face the reality that 
there are going to be loved ones in our lives who are going to die, right? I mean, if you asked any average American adult, hey, do you think your loved one, maybe someone who's older than you, like a parent or a grandparent, do you think they're going to live forever? They're going to say, no, of course not. That's ridiculous. I don't believe that. And yet when the day comes, when their loved one passes, the way they react, the way they behave, the sorrow, the pain, the wailing, the misery, it's almost as if their behavior is saying, I never thought my loved one would leave. And yet if you ask them, they know clearly, rationally, of course I knew they were going to leave. And yet their own emotional responses indicate as if that wasn't going to happen. How do you explain that? Are they confused? No. They have encountered a moment of wisdom in their life. They've encountered a moment where they know that just because something is true doesn't make it right. Just because suffering is the norm doesn't mean it should be normal. Just because suffering is common doesn't mean it should be common. Just because suffering is regular doesn't mean it should be regular. You see? And it's for this reasons these Christians were taken aback when they were suffering for their faith. Not because they were naive, not because they were foolish, but because they understood the difference between something that is true but yet something that is not right. In other words, these Christians were surprised that their suffering deep down was not the way it was supposed to be. Listen to how one New Testament scholar by the name of Karen Jobes, listen to what she says as she reflects on this very verse. She writes this, quote, Misfortune and death are certainly normal in the sense that they are universally experienced, but they are not normal when viewed from God's intention in creation and his plan in redemption. The idea that normal life should always be harmonious and free from suffering despite universal suffering and death remains a lingering echo of life in Eden as God created it before the fall. What's she saying? She's saying that suffering may be normal, but it's an abnormal normal. It's an irregular regularity, right? It's something that is common that should be very, very uncommon and virtually not happen at all. Now, putting all this together, we ask, what is Peter's point in all this? Here's his point. He is trying to tell Christians, including all of you, that when you go through unjust sufferings, you must never, ever concede to the idea that, oh, well, unjust suffering is simply the way the world is, and I just need to just blindly accept it. I just need to resign myself to that fact and just tolerate it, Deal with it and just move on with my life, right? And it's so important that you really get that because when you read what Peter says in verse 12, it almost sounds as if that's exactly what he's telling us to do. Read it again what he says. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you. I mean, you can totally twist that and cause that to think Peter is saying, guys, you just need to deal with it. You need to suck it up, grow up, deal with the fact that this is how life is, right? And therefore, you just need to deal with it. In other words, you could totally pervert what Peter is saying as if he's promoting stoicism, as if you should be a stoic. You know what a stoic is? A stoic is someone who just passively accepts everything that happens in life without any resistance, without any sense of objection, and just accepts it blindly. Even the most tragic, the most terrible, the darkest, sinister things that happen in life, it is what it is. There is no point even wasting your life or wasting anyone else's time, but moaning and wailing and trying to figure out how, how and why. Just move on, right? It is what it is. There's nothing beyond it. Just accept it. 
You know, this view is becoming very popular today in our culture and society. And it's a view that's being promoted in our society by those who we would elevate as being very intellectual, very evolved, and very wise. Case in point, Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, that famed atheist out in Oxford, England, who's admired by many, he promotes this very idea. Listen to what he says in his book, River Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life. He writes, quote, we humans have purpose on the brain. Show us almost any object or process, and it's hard for us to resist the why question. It is an almost, what did he say, universal delusion. The old temptation comes back with a vengeance when tragedy strikes. Why, oh why, did the cancer, earthquake, hurricane have to strike my child? This agony from suffering only happens because we cannot admit that things might be neither good nor evil, neither cruel nor kind, but simply callous indifference to all suffering, lacking purpose. As that unhappy poet A.E. Hausman put it, for nature, heartless, witless nature will neither care nor know. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we just dance to its music. What's he saying? He's saying, stop trying to figure out why you're suffering or how this could be happening in your life, because there is no answer to those questions. It just is. It's neither good. It's neither bad. So just accept it and stop wasting your life or mine asking pointless, futile questions that have no answer to it, right? But as we'll see in just a minute, Peter is going to say that is absolutely wrong. And the way he's going to do that is by combining what he says in verse 12 with what he says in verses 13 to 14, right? Because his understanding of suffering, specifically unjust suffering for the Christian, has a big, deep, profound understanding behind it. And so let's go into that now, which leads me to my next and final point. Christian suffering is a derivative of a greater suffering. Let's read verse 12, but this time include 13 and 14. And it reads, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, as I said, you read verse 12, which could be misinterpreted, gets clarified when you read it with verse 13 and 14. Because in a nutshell, what Peter is saying is your unjust suffering, Christian, the suffering that you're going through that is unprovoked and unfair is a derivative of a greater suffering. That's what he's saying. Again, the unjust suffering you go through in this life as a follower of Jesus is a derivative of a greater suffering. What do I mean by that? A derivative of a greater suffering. Well, do you know what a derivative is? You might vaguely remember that term in your high school chemistry or high school calculus class. But simply put, a derivative simply means unoriginal or not the original or secondary, something that is the result of something else. So, for example, my children are a derivative of my marriage to Sarah, right? They are secondarily results of my love for Sarah and her love for me. They are not original to the marriage, but they are the result of the marriage, right? They are derived from our love for one another. And in a sense, that is what Peter is saying when it comes to our unjust sufferings. Our unjust sufferings are not original. They are derived. They are the result. They are secondary to something else, specifically to the sufferings of someone else, the sufferings that are greater than our sufferings. Let me try to illustrate with what I mean with an unfortunate real-life example that happens too frequently. Let's say, for example, a husband who's been married to a woman who's been loving and faithful to her 
to him, excuse me, for many, many years, and he decides to come home and leave her. Right? Let's say he just fell in love with his secretary, and he says, honey, I don't love you anymore. I'm in love with, I don't know, so-and-so, and I'm leaving, and I'm not coming back. Right? Just leaves without warning. Question, is that wife going to suffer? Right? Is she going to go through unjust suffering? Oh, yeah. And as a result, she's going to be miserable, rightly so, because she's the direct object of his rejection. But let me ask you, let's say that they have kids Three kids, right? All early teens, late teens. Are they going to suffer? Oh, yes, they will too. But why? It's not as if the father is rejecting them. In fact, in most instances, the father will tell the kids something like, you know, guys, I know this is rough, but I want you to know I still love you. I just don't love your mother anymore, right? Which is simply another way of saying, I'm not rejecting you guys. I'm just rejecting your mom. I still want a relationship with you. I still want custody of you. I still want to make sure that you know that I'm always going to be your father, even though I'm never going to always be the husband of your mother, right? If that's the case, if the rejection is not directed against them directly, why are they suffering? You know why? Because they are the children of the one who is suffering, right? They are the children of the mother who is being rejected. Why? Because they have a bond with their mom. They have a union with mom, right? A union with mom, a relationship that cannot be disconnected. And by virtue of that relationship, whatever suffering mom will go through, they are going to suffer by virtue of that union. And because that is true, that is a perfect illustration of why we followers of Jesus, why we suffer. Because the Bible says Christians have a union with Christ as well. Do you know that you have a bond with Christ to where what happens to him happens to you? Whether good for bad, his glory becomes your glory. His righteousness becomes your righteousness, but also his sufferings becomes your sufferings, right? Listen again to what he says at the beginning of verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. As you share Christ's sufferings because of our union with Christ, because of our relationship with him that was created by faith in him, by the Holy Spirit, when we made him the Lord and Savior of our life in response to the work of the Spirit in our hearts, his sufferings, which he endured in this world, results in our suffering. You see, this world rejected Jesus, and it still rejects Jesus, by the way, just like that husband rejected the wife in my illustration, okay? And because of our union with Jesus, we suffer the collateral damage of the world's rejection of Christ in the form of our unjust sufferings. That's what Peter is saying. In fact, not only Peter, Jesus himself says the same thing. John 15, starting in the 18th verse, we read, If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of this world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you because of me. For they have rejected the one who sent me. See, Peter and Jesus are saying the same thing. That when we unjustly suffer in this world as Christians, we must remember it's primarily because it first rejected the one who we are connected to. Which means our sufferings are not original to us. They're original to Christ. And we, because of our connection to Christ, 
suffer unjust sufferings. We, our sufferings are derived from his sufferings. Why is this so important to know? Why is this so relevant? Well, there are two things that I think make this very relevant for us. Okay? Take a clear listen. Reason number one, we cannot, as Christians, blame Jesus for all the unjust suffering we go through in this world. Let me say that again. We cannot, as Christians, blame Christ for the unjust sufferings, the unfair sufferings we go through in this world. You know, one of the most common and most dangerous responses that people get when they suffer unjustly is they kind of make these exclusive um, demands of ownership. They, they kind of take exclusive ownership of their suffering as if to say it's uniquely theirs. Oh, no one has suffered the way I have. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrows, right? And because they think this way, they think it gives them the right to leverage themselves, to promote themselves in such a way as the victim, thereby demanding whatever they want, whenever they want it, from whoever they want, because they're the victim, right? They're the ones who've suffered. Oh, woe is me. You should come now and help me. You should put attention on me. You should give your resources to me. And I shouldn't be held responsible for anyone else's sufferings. I should be excused from that responsibility because, hey, I'm in a worse situation, right? I shouldn't advocate for anyone else. I should only advocate for me because my suffering is so bad, right? Listen to how one theologian by the name of Paul Tripp, what he says about all this, he writes, quote, we tend to treat suffering as if it belongs to us, something to where we can respond to as we please. We tend to turn in on ourselves. Our world shrinks to the size of our pain. We want little more than release, and we tend to be irritable and demanding. Pretty soon, it doesn't take long to realize that our suffering gives us power, and we cry in pain. People run to help us. They offer us physical comfort, say nice things, and release us from our responsibility. What's he saying? He's saying when you fall into the delusion that your sufferings, the unjust sufferings are uniquely yours and exclusively yours to where you can make exclusive demands that no one else can release you from, you could become a monster, is what he's saying. You could be so self-centered, so self-absorbed, and instead of being a source of blessing, you can be a curse of a demand to the people around you. And again, Peter says, as Christians... You can't do that with your unjust sufferings because you know why? Your unjust sufferings are derived. They're not original. They're not exclusively yours. They really belong to Christ, the one who you're united to. And you know what that means? You can never blame Jesus. You can never take out your anger and frustration on Jesus for the pain that you are suffering because of it. I mean, it would be comparable to that ch- those children in my illustration blaming their mom for the pain they're suffering That was the result of their dad leaving her. They would never do that, right? And so, Christian, you cannot blame your Jesus for the pain you go through that is a result of the world abandoning him. Do you see that? If you do, then you're ready to move on to the second thing we need to take away, okay? And that is when we realize that our sufferings are derived from Christ's sufferings, it gives us unwavering hope unwavering hope verse 19 put it up there read again what he says in verse 19 he says therefore let those who suffer according to god's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good now one of the most confusing things about this passage is what peter says about god here in verse 19 what does he call him he calls him faithful creator 
Now, the reason why that's such an odd statement is because right before verse 19, in verse 17 and 18, he refers to God as what? The judge and as the savior, right? Two different categories of work that God does, making this reference to God being the creator a little out of place. In fact, it's so out of place that even Bible scholars like Warren Wearsby ask the following question. Why did Peter refer to God as a faithful creator rather than a faithful judge or even a faithful savior? It's a great question. Why so? He seems like he's mixing apples and oranges. Ah, we find the answer when we remember that our sufferings are derived from the sufferings of Christ. Right? Let me show you. One of the things that people object to with this whole idea that our sufferings are derived from Christ is that they would say something like, well, if what you're saying is true, wouldn't that give God the right to basically dismiss our sufferings, to not care about our sufferings? Right? Now, why would they say that? Well, let me use this illustration. Have you ever been in a situation or you've seen a scenario like the following where a person is about to share their struggles, their pain, their misery with somebody else, but when they find out that this someone else has worse problems than them, they're like, okay, no, I'm not going to say anything, right? Why do they do that? Because that person's greater sufferings delegitimizes their sufferings, right? Because as bad and as painful as their suffering may be, this other person's suffering is far worse than theirs to where it almost trivializes their own suffering in light of that person's suffering. And so the thought pattern is, is that if Christ's suffering is so greater than our suffering, if our suffering is secondary to his, where his suffering should be more prioritized, more spotlighted on, then he could just respond to us by saying, why are you coming to me with your sufferings? Don't you realize that my sufferings are far worse? I got to deal with me before I deal with you. Don't you realize my, my issues are more significant than yours? Right? That's one of the criticisms that people will say about this view. And it's because Peter is aware of that, that he calls God the faithful creator. The faithful creator. Because by calling God the faithful creator, Peter is assuring us that Jesus would never delegitimize our sufferings, even though he could. Because he's the faithful creator. Now, what in the world does God, Jesus, being the faithful creator, have anything to do with any of this? Well, think about it for a moment. When Peter says that Jesus is the faithful creator, he's saying that he's the consistent creator, right? He's consistently a certain way when he creates. How does God consistently create? You read the first chapter of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. How does God consistently create when he creates? What is Jesus always doing when he creates? He stops and he looks at it and he says what? It's good. In the Hebrew, right, it actually literally means the best, glorious, right? Tov. When God creates, he stops and he looks and he says, it's good. And then he moves on. And you see this cyclical pattern. He creates, looks good. Works, creates, good. Why does God, why does Jesus only create good things, the best things? The same reason why students apply to the schools that provide the best education. The same reason why that young man buys the best quality diamond for his fiance, right? Right, guys? You did that, right? <laughs> the same reason why first-time parents or soon-to-be parents buy the best furniture, the best products for their nursery, for their little kids, because they want the person using these things to flourish, to bless. The reason why God created a good creation is so that the people using this creation, us, would flourish and be blessed. In other words, we would not suffer. We would not 
be in lack. So when you combine that idea with this notion of Jesus coming back in a second coming where he's going to judge sin and save sinners, which is what verse 17 and 18, what is Jesus saying? He's saying that the outcome of all that, the outcome of me saving sinners and judging sin will result that those who are in union with me, those who are in covenant with me, will flourish again to where no matter what unjust sufferings have come upon them will be completely reversed and everything that was lost will be given back again. All the things that made your life good that was taken away by unjust suffering will be returned. All the people who made your life good that was taken away from you by unjust suffering, they will come back to you. All the opportunities that you never got to have because of unjust suffering will finally be given to you again in the new creation when Jesus comes back and is consistent in the way he recreates the new heavens and the new earth. He will make sure that those who are in union with him will flourish again. Listen again to what uh, Tim Keller says here. He writes this. One of the deepest desires of the human heart is for love without parting. Needless to say, the prospect of the resurrection is far more comforting than the belief that death takes you into nothingness or into an impersonal spiritual substance. The resurrection goes beyond the promise of an ethereal disembodied afterlife. We get our bodies back in a state of beauty and power that we cannot today imagine. We get it all back, the love, the loved ones, the goods, the beauty of this life, but in new unimaginable degrees of glory and joy and strength. What's he saying? Jesus is the faithful creator and it will be expressed in the new resurrection that begins with your own resurrection when he recreates the new heavens and the new earth, reversing all the unjust suffering that led to your loss, whether it's a loss of things that were good, loved ones that were precious and opportunities that were taken away. That's the promise that Peter is saying, which is why as Christians, you know what that means? It means you can have unwavering hope even in the midst of such incredible suffering that you go through that is so unfair, that is so unprovoked and so unjust. Here's the question. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Is that your hope? I want to end my message um, addressing those of you here who might not be Christian. If you're here investigating Christianity, I'm sure, no doubt, a question is swirling through your head right now. And that question is, Pastor, if what you're saying is true, that for Christians, their unjust sufferings is a derivative of Christ's sufferings, what does that mean about my unjust sufferings? Because after all, Christians are not the only one who suffer unjustly, right? And if I don't have a relationship with Christ, if I don't have a union with Christ, what relevance does his sufferings have to me? What influence, what impact, what meaning does it have? If I don't have a connection with Jesus, does it mean, for example, that I can be legitimately self-centered because I can make exclusive claims over my unjust sufferings. Because after all, if I'm not connected with Christ's sufferings, that means my sufferings aren't derived. It must be original to me. Does that mean, therefore, I can be self-centered and I can demand whatever I want, whenever I want, from whoever I want? Huh? And furthermore, does it mean, more darkly, I can't have any hope whatsoever, right, when it comes to the overall outcome of my unjust sufferings that I go through in this life? Thankfully, the answer to both questions is no. Let me begin with the first question. If you are a person who suffered unjustly, right, you would be justified in being very self-centered to where you can demand anything you want from whenever, whenever you want from whoever you want. 
Okay, what is going on out there? Okay, four of them are mine, so, or three of them are mine. The other two are in here, but um, I got lost. Thanks, kids. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, if you suffer unjustly, you would be justified in being the most self-absorbed, self-centered person demanding so much from everyone around you, right? Without filter, if no one else suffered more than you, get it? If you are someone who suffered unjustly, you would be right to demand that you be the center of everyone's attention and you should be given all resources of affirmation and love and if no one else has it worse than you. Because if someone else has it worse than you, they take that right from you and have it on themselves, right? That would be the only way. But here's the problem. There's always going to be someone who has it worse than all of you in here. Am I right? By virtue of the fact that you live in America, is fact that you are not worst off, that you don't have the worst unjust suffering of a human being. But even that, whoever that person might be on this earth, that person can't even make that kind of demand. You know why? Because the scripture tells us there really is only one person who can make that kind of legitimate demand of self-absorption and self-centeredness. It's Jesus. You know why? Because he's the only innocent person who truly suffered unjustly. And not just physical suffering that this world has to offer, but he suffered cosmic suffering. He suffered hell. The fact that Jesus suffered hell makes him the worst victim of unjust suffering. Now, of course, this does not mean that Jesus is going to be the only one who's going to suffer hell. For surely scripture says other people will suffer hell, but he will be the only person who suffered hell unjustly. He's the only innocent person who endured the wrath of God in a state when he deeply loved God and adored God and wanted nothing but to be in fellowship with God. Scripture tells us that those who suffer in hell have no desire to repent, no desire to be with God. They're always cursing God for all eternity. It's not like people in hell like, oh, take me back, take me back. No, Scripture says they're constantly cursing. As the flames get higher, metaphorically, they're still cursing God. Jesus is the only one who was, metaphorically speaking, suffering hell and still crying out, where are you, God? Where are you? Why have you abandoned me? No one, even in hell, will suffer the level of trauma and pain that Jesus did as he descended against God's wrath and he died when he died on the cross. Right? The fact that Jesus has the trump card over all of us when it comes to who suffered the most tells us even for those of you here who suffered most, you cannot in any way be validated in demanding of being the center of attention. You cannot. Listen to how Tim Keller describes describes Jesus' suffering. He writes, Jesus was abandoned, denied, and betrayed by all the people he had poured his life into. And on the cross, he was forsaken even by his father. This final experience, ultimately unfathomable to us, means infinite cosmic agony beyond the knowledge of any of us on earth. For the ultimate suffering is the loss of love, and this was the loss of an eternal perfect love. There is nothing more difficult than the disruption and loss of family relationships. But here we see that God knows what it is like to suffer not just because he sees it in far greater clarity than we, but because he has personally suffered the most severe way possible. The agony of loss by death, the separation from the beloved and the disruption of his own family, the Trinity, by the immensity of his own wrath. That last statement right there is the kicker because what Keller is saying is that Jesus is the only person who has every legitimate right of demanding whatever he wants, 
whenever he wants it from whoever he wants to where he can say, you need to all serve me because of my sufferings. But you know what? He doesn't. Instead, he comes so that he could suffer so that he could be your servant, the servant of all who would believe in him. That's what the gospel teaches. Why? Because that's his love for you. That's his love for us. Listen, Jesus came and suffered the way they did, not so he could leverage himself as the center of attention of the universe. He came so that he could have you. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're suffering unjustly, that is his message to you today. If you are going through such suffering and such hopelessness, the promise that Jesus is making to you right now is that if you make him Lord and Savior, if you recognize him for who he is in your life, your creator whom you are destined to be with, that was disrupted by sin, but now restored because of his work on the cross as your savior substitute, that love is yours. All you need to do is to receive it by believing it. Here's the question. Are you going to accept it? Are you going to stop fixating on your own sufferings, but instead fixate on the sufferings of Christ and see his redeeming, forgiving love for you? so that you can no longer just fixate on yourself, demanding to be the attention of all, but you can finally start paying attention to the people around you who probably are having it worse than you right now. My challenge to all of us in here is that as we go through suffering that is unprovoked, that is unfair and unjust, that as soon as you see it, you don't stay there, but you see to what it points to. You see the one who suffered for you at greater cost so that you can live with such joy and thankfulness, knowing this is not how it's going to end. Your faithful redeemer is also your faithful creator. But do you believe that? Will you believe that? Let's pray. Father, at this time, usually we begin with next steps of applications of what we can do practically next. And yet at this point, Lord, we know there's nothing that we need to do except for just one thing, and that is to believe, simply to believe. God, would you help us to believe who you are? You are the faithful creator who loves us and it is for us. You are the one who is committed, reliably committed to our flourishing and blessing. And though, Father, we have done things that might have forfeited that, we also have suffered in ways that are still unprovoked. And when these moments come, whether it be in sickness, death of a loved one, suffering beyond loss that we can imagine, we pray that we would look to you, especially in moments of such confusing times when we're asking how this can happen. Lord, help us to look to Jesus. Help us to look to the cross so that we can be freed from this confusion and move forward with faith and hope and thereby being a source of blessing to the people around us. Oh God, would you help us now? And I pray, especially for those of us in here who are in a season of unjust suffering, who are in a season of sorrow and pain. Oh God, would you minister to them by showing them your faithful wounds to them, giving them attached to it the promise of hope, the promise of restoration, the promise where all things and all people that were taken will be given back in full. Would you help us to believe that now? For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.